Welcome to this week's episode of As the Actress Said to the Critic. We're doing controversially the other way around with me, Nancy Carroll, the actress. And me, Sarah Crompton, the critic. Yeah, we turned it around. Yeah, <laughs> normally we do it the other way around, if you notice. Um, we've had a nice week this week. Very we lovely theater. week. Following on from our podcast last week with uh, Jeremy Heron, we went to see his production of Best of Enemies by James Graham. And the Noel Coward Theatre. It's awesome. It's awesome, isn't it? Really awesome. Full of awe. We were full of awe. Yeah. It's always interesting because going back to something you've liked. I mean, I did really love it the first time. And um, it was, I wrote before that it made me punch the air. And I wrote this time for what's on stage. It made me punch the air again. Yeah. It's just fabulous. Yes. And, uh, And Zachary Quinto has come into it is terrific, Gore Vidal. And uh, and you said very different to Charlie Edwards. I didn't see it when yeah. it was on the Young Vic. Yeah, it was interesting to see that because you don't often get the chance to compare performances kind of so closely. And um, it was quite different. He was more he was more dangerous, I think, in a way. That he yeah. had this kind of intensity that um, I don't think Charles quite had. I think Charles probably a bit more charming and he was he was there's there's a moment where William F Buckley describes Gore Vidal as feline and I felt that Zachary Quinto played really kind of strongly on that quality yeah that he just got the yeah the 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 sort of sense of being watchful and slightly um slinky yes it's such a fascinating thing though as well to have the opportunity to compare any two performances, particularly when the writing is of such a high quality and so extraordinarily sort of on the money and, and what we need to be listening to right now. But but that also that, you know, you, you see what actors bring to things and that, that, you know, even with the same director, even with much of the same original cast, you know, that... The sort of the vessel of of Zach Quinto and how those words affect him and what he takes from it and what his life experience has brought to it and how he reacts to all of that, particularly being American. Yeah. I find that fascinating, just as a sort of equation, what we bring to things and how, you know, the sort of electrical sparks of difference, um, you know, can the prism of that performance on those words at this time, I, I just think is such a an extraordinary thing that we take for granted because people, you know, remount productions all yes, the time and, and we revisit plays all the time. But actually when you see it like that and 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 that he's, you know, one of the a few things that have changed in the production, I I just it's so exciting. Yeah. And What's it, also fascinating is is that well? T- two things I we both noticed really. One is that it works within the context of a fairly traditional proscenium arch yeah. setting of a Western theatre. Yeah, yeah. Um, and whereas before it had been in the Young Vic and had a kind of slightly let's put the show on right here feel yes, to it. Yes, yes, yes. Um, uh, but it works bu- brilliantly within that setting with uh, adapted. And so one of my colleagues wrote that it it kind of graces the West End. You have this sense that you know such good contemporary relevant writing in the West End really kind of ups everybody's game. Yeah. But the other thing we both loved about it was that. It's such a celebration of theatre yeah. in itself because it plays with the form of theatre. Yeah, yeah. Um, in a, a, a really impressive way and slips in and out of theatricality. So it starts off, it starts at the end in a sense. Yes, yes. 
um, and then reels back. And uh, yeah, and, it, and, and you can't imagine it being anything other than a play. Well, I mean, sitting there as a performer and it, you, I'm watching it and looking at the extraordinary work that must have been going on backstage with all the quick changes and different, oh, the supporting company who were playing lots of different parts and seamlessly and, and you know, and, and there was such joy in that in the, and that the story is so clear and that they were all, it just looked, they were so robust in in the sort of trajectory of, of getting all of those ele- different elements yeah. from different parts of history. And you've got, you know, James Graham has brought in Aretha Franklin yes. and James Baldwin and Andy Warhol and all these people because it's very much about that time. Yeah. So he's giving the story of these uh, interviews a, a really robust, using the word robust twice, um, context. And, yeah. and that, again, is... It's just so exciting, I think, to be part of an industry that that is so clear. Yeah, and he plays with it, doesn't he? So when when Aretha Franklin appears the first time, um, they're they're discussing whether they, the characters, need to introduce themselves because effectively you're catapulted into the middle of the action. Yeah, and there's this very good sort of meta joke where he says and this is Aretha Franklin and she goes honey they don't you don't need to introduce yeah, me they know who know. I am they know who I am and it's sort of it's, it's kind of got that cleverness and then towards the end there's this kind of moment where the action stops and we're actually allowed to do what in our heads we're doing as the audience which is yeah. to analyze what it all means and you get this media studies student stepping forward and going I'm a media studies student yeah, yeah. <laughs> let's all have a thing and I I just love that kind of confidence yes of it. yes and um it made me feel really again as I did when I first saw it really just excited about the possibilities of theatre and excited that it's a way to look at the you know they the state we're in, you yeah. know, that it's so much about um, polarized debate between you know, left and right. Yeah, yeah. The changes in politics, the changes in television that have made us as we are. I don't kind of feel it's well. It's holding the mirror up to life, isn't it? Which is the job of theatre. It's the job of. I mean, it's interesting. We, you know, we've been talking around the the history of theatre and and you know, recently with all the arts cuts and we it cropped up when we were talking to Jeremy about the nature of uh, subsidised versus commercial theatre. And it makes you think hard and it's it's nuanced and tricky and political in a way that I truly believe it shouldn't be political. I think it's about humanity and human rights and right, you know, that anyway, it's a, it's a much bigger argument. But it is that thing that theatre can do so brilliantly, which is it 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 shows you where we're at. Yeah in a way that is concise and articulate and palpable and you can take it on board. Yeah, yeah. In a way that sometimes when the press are polarised, you, you, it's just too confusing. Yeah. But if you're sat in an audience and we're all sat in together, you, you've all signed a contract to listen to the message. And there, I don't think there are many, if any, other mediums that are capable of it in that way. No. And it's more important now than ever, I it think. It is. And it, it is fascinating because we have been thinking about the history of theatre. I've been um, reading Robert Harris's uh, book about the regicides who, um, the killers of King Charles I, who authorised his reg- um, act of oblivion. Yeah. And which is a riveting book. And I find it particularly riveting because my background 
being sort of Methodist essentially puts me on the side of the Puritans. Yeah. But of course, one of the first <laughs> things the Puritans did was to close the theatres. And right. part of the reason that they closed the theatres was that they were sort of places of licence and um, wildness and... Um, you know, uh, bad behaviour, but the hedonistic, other re- yeah. hedonistic bad yeah. behaviour. But the other reason that they closed them was they didn't want the debate, I think. And, yes, you know, they yes. actually, Cromwell has a bad reputation with pamphleteers and all the rest of it yeah, as well. Yeah, yeah. And so that makes you think about how long um, theatre has been a place where, which, you know, that kind of sense of licence, that being able to talk about things. Yes, yes. Is, is really inherent... Even when you were just going along to have a laugh, yeah, it yeah. has that sense of just allowing you to explore things. Well, there's an anarchy, perceptibly, I suppose, an anarchy to live theatre. You don't know which way it's going to go until it actually transpires, yeah. you know, the, the full capacity of whatever that particular story or questioning is. I think, you know, that there's a... Oh, it, it's, in, it's interesting, you know, reading around the cuts and the tradition of different governments and how they perceive the arts and the, their place in society and whether they are superfluous to the core needs of what any community needs to be run healthily. Yeah. Um, and, and it, I mean, it, it, it's really interesting and there are, you, there are loads of different views and at the moment everybody needs money. There's absolutely no question of that. What's interesting is that when when they suffered, particularly in the 80s, it was very much that that conservative government, that Thatcher's conservative government, really, really resisted the questioning that theatres and the media were capable of and that 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 was seen as a direct threat and that it it had no place being subsidised by government funds. And, And... you know, it, it's all very well trying to squash it, but but it will rear its head again, yeah. and it will find money and and means in other ways because people need to express opinions. It, it's part of what it is to be alive. I think it's really interesting how we've got to the point we're in. I was very struck this week by the fact that the Today program, which BBC's Today program, announced its guest editors yeah. for the Christmas period. And there's a sports person and there's a technology person and there's a scientist and there's um, business people. Yeah, yeah. Lots of interesting people. There is not a, um, apart from Bjorn of ABBA, there is not a single representative of the arts, yeah. which I find extraordinary in a country where, without doubt, the, one of the most successful industries that we have is the cultural industry. Yes, yes. And I think one of the kind of depressing um, achievements of what's happened over the last, certainly over the last 12 years, but perhaps was happening a bit before that. Yeah. It's this idea that somehow the arts is a luxury and yes, you can yes. do it if you can afford it. And you're just pushing it to the side of culture. It doesn't really matter. It doesn't matter as much as sport. It doesn't matter as much as um, our ability to invent things. Yes. Whereas, you know, the post-war consensus, which is what we did all grow up in, yeah. you know, the idea of the Arts Council, the idea of Mainyard, Keynes was that culture wasn't essential to life, whether yeah. it be music or theatre or art galleries or whatever. People everywhere, every class, every colour had a right to um, access to yeah, those yeah. things. And 
Obviously, that's kind of as idealistic as the NHS or as idealistic as any of those post-war dreams. But it's got, it has really got squidged somewhere. Yes, yes. And I find it, I find every day I get slightly more uh, worried by that because, um, yeah, the the arts budgets are so tiny. Yes. I mean, it's not like we're spending a lot on the arts. We're just no. spending a little bit, like a little pump primer. Yeah, yeah. You think this government are spending £750,000 a day storing unfit PPE left over from COVID. It really yeah. puts it in perspective. Yeah. And and I, I have absolutely no um, issue with, you know, pumping arts money out into the regions. I think, you know, that, and very much post-COVID, that really, really needs that sort of intravenous help line and, and sort of vote of confidence yeah. from, from the metropoli around, you know, the country. And I, I, I don't even know that's a word. Just made it's it a nice up. word. Thank you very much. <laughs> um, but, it, but at the same time, when other people like the Donmar and the ENO and the National are going to take a massive whack, yeah. then there's something amiss. Yeah. And, and it makes you have to re-evaluate and, and recalibrate what you think community is when you think that actually it's not just lovely, glamorous shows and, and tits and teeth and it's all wonderful and it's superfluous. You know, you've got massive education programmes, you've got massive therapy programmes, you've got massive outreach programmes. And we were talking earlier about uh, Clint Dyer on, on uh, Front Row talking oh, yeah. about what... You know, the, the the thing that brought him out of, in his words, the, the sort of the poverty of his childhood and what gave him the... the aspiration. The aspiration yeah. and yeah. the path to where he is now, yeah. being yeah. extraordinary and brilliant at what he does and, you yeah. know, uh, and, and, and running the National yeah. Theatre with Rufus Norris. Yeah, and it, it is a fascinating interview that um, with Clint Dyer, who's... Um, the other thing I've done this week, see his... Really magnificent production of Othello. I just I can't adored wait. it. I'm making Nancy go and see it because it is so great. And you feel that that he's he talks very well about how the idea was that as a working class boy, his um, route out of his his sort of poverty really was being a footballer. He was a good yeah, footballer. Yeah. And then uh, Philip Headley of Stratford East opens up a different route. And here he is at the National Theatre, deputy artistic director making an Othello that opens up a really tricky play, in my opinion, to a whole new um, generation of people, makes yeah. it suddenly accessible and understandable and with something to speak to everybody. Um, and exciting again. I, I, I think in all these conversations about theatre, one of the things that you kind of gets lost is this, um, is the idea that theatre is at its best, is nearly always exciting. It nearly always provokes or yeah. delights or pushes you to 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 engage in a different way. Yeah. And I think it's just I yeah, I really at the moment feel it's tragic that we're just not the conversation we're having is yeah. essentially about whether twenty four million yes. should have been spent in London or outside London. Yes. Whereas the real conversation we should be having is whether um, that 24 million should ever have been moved, whether 400 and, I don't know, 446 million is uh, an adequate arts budget anyway. Yes. Whether, you know, a government values the arts, whether you think that that in taking any little bit of it out... Yes. ..you destroy an ecology that is producing actors, writers, directors. It's a massive industry. I mean, this government loves trade. It's a capitalist government 
and they talk in, in terms of monetary value. You know, you can argue that the value of the arts as museums and heritage and music and opera and concerts and theatre and education programmes across the country, arts therapy, everything, you know, is that... Can you see that in terms of trade? There are There is a huge monetary value that Sam Mendes brilliantly laid out in his article in the Financial Times yeah. at the beginning of the pandemic, just purely in arts terms. Yeah. There was nothing... Nothing emotional in that article. He laid it out as an investment program and that this is how much we've given to you in the last 10 which years. Billions. This is our growth, which is extraordinary. You know, that we're not just talking about at the high end of things, but ultimately, you know, the, the ecosystem that is the arts in this country needs investment at every single level and that, that it needs help from governments because there are people trying to make work who have nothing and so they need that you know that encouragement that that little thing to get them started yeah. because in 20 years time they may be running the national theater they may be you know creating Writing a brilliant yeah, play creating or a brilliant films. tv you know, series the, the, yeah. you know it, it goes back to the the at the center of every community from the beginning of time is storytelling yeah. There is music. Why do we sing hymns in church? Yeah. Why do we hand down stories? Why did the mama's play happen? Why did the hunters in, in the caves, you know, recount the story of the hunt that everybody came? Because that's what we do. Yeah, yeah. That's what we do. That's why we come together. And, it, you know, it, in those terms, it's preventative yeah. medicine. Yeah. You know, what they're talking about is, is the sort of the bones of society. Yeah. You know, the education system, the bones of the education system is maths and English and languages and science and whatever. And the flesh of drama and art and music yeah, yeah. gets cut. Yeah. You know, the, the, it, that's what they want. They want the bare bones. They want to be able to, you know, statistically prove um, that everybody's doing well and siphon it all off to private companies, and, you know, and, and, and it's just about that. But what we're talking about is mental health. Yeah. We're talking about the heart of community. Yeah. We're talking about growing things from scratch. We're talking about everything that makes, that brings people together, that that it, that it goes beyond words, yeah. that goes beyond you know, the pain of, of, of loss. You know, I was listening to somebody the other day, Richard E. Grant on Desert Island Disc, beautiful, absolutely beautiful. And he was talking about in those moments, in those weeks after he lost his wife, that the music was everything. Yeah. It was, it was, it, it, it was all he could manage yeah. because the words didn't manage it. And, and so that that's what it is. It's, it's a language beyond language, and it's yeah. it's how we connect. And communication yeah. and connection is how we move forward. It's how we prevent wars. It's how we grow. It's how we teach our kids. It's how we stay safe. Yeah. And and for them to think that it's a superfluous frivolity, and that it should only be afforded by the the very very rich and glamorous velvet skirted intellectual. Yeah, well, that's the trouble. You know, that's it, like, that is the come trouble. Come on. Yeah. It, it, it belongs to everybody. Yeah, that is the trouble with what's going on. So I think. So I think. Well, I think two things. One is that I've always been very conscious, having spent you know quite a lot of my working life in the regions, um, that theatres are that place that people also go for a cup of coffee yeah. and um, are coming together. You know that I remember I used to work opposite the Belgrade in Coventry, which actually um, is um, a, a recipient of extra money from the Arts Council. Away. Yeah. Um, and um, but yeah, it was full of people just having a cup of coffee or a cup of tea on their way to somewhere else, yes. as well as all the people going to see a play. And I think that side of theatre gets overlooked. The idea that in those town centres, particularly those regional theatres built in the 
idealistic 60s as focal points of communities yeah, um, yeah. really do matter. Um, but I also think the other great danger is that this idea that you go back to having art for those who can pay for it. And and that's particularly true with what's happening with opera because, yeah. I mean, you know, I have some sympathy with that. I don't like opera. I just happen... I mean, you know, I, I that's not fair. I've Some of the greatest... Um, theatrical experiences in my life have been in an opera house and yes. I have seen some amazing operas yeah. but I always think you can put on the CD or whatever and that's terribly unfair and all the rest of it so I'm not really an advocate for opera yeah. but what worries me about what's happening with the conversation now is the idea that opera can kind of fend for itself yes so yes. and basically it can fend for itself because rich people go to the opera yeah the idea yeah. that you as a uh, a poorer person might actually want to experience, you know, a cut price ticket and, yes. and, and, and uh, you know, and have your life completely changed. My sister-in-law adores opera. She feels that it's kind of um, so important and life enhancing and all the yes, rest of it, yes. you know, and she'll, she'll spend her last fiver on trying to see something. And I think, you know, it's just, it's very dangerous to start to, the, the, to start to talk about the arts being able to fend for itself yeah. without uh, at least accepting the kind of pump priming, which is really all that subsidy now is. It, uh, there was a point where subsidy accounted for a very large proportion of yes. theatre spend, but now, in fact, it always accounts for a kind of tiny, tiny proportion. And yes, they, yes. they raise loads of money by restaurants and ticket sales and, you know, fund private fundraising. Yeah, so yeah. It, it bothers me that uh, we have... That it's kind of, yeah, that just as a society, it's somehow becoming a bit more and more of, I don't know, a kind of, I think we are slipping backwards to regarding it as sort of elite or um, just for some people, not for everyone. Yes. Nika Burns this week was talking about her new venture at Soho yeah. Place, which is very commercial. You know, it's part of a commercial development in central London. Um, it's very adventurous. It's got um, Jessie Rooks, as you like, it, opening there soon. Um, and she says, you know, she's really happy to um, be commercial, yes. you know, to, to fend for herself. Right. But what worries her is that if you don't accept subsidy at some levels, if you don't believe in the building of an ecosystem, yeah. then it's really, really hard for young people to get a start. it's That's what the subsidised sector has to be. It has to find the actors, the producers, the engineers, the directors, yeah, sound the writers, people, the all of those yeah. people. And that's where the subsidised sector in this country has made a huge difference to um, what we've all known since 1946. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And the, yeah, and the, 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 the 46 and the sort of the building of the state was of a similar ideology, which is, you know, the, and, and very much rebuilding the country after the war. Yeah. And, and realising that everybody had been on the front line together. And there are a lot of similarities with what the last two years is, you know, there's been vast amounts of lives lost you know, huge, you know, destruction of, of of the country through, you know, loss of funding and loss of custom, as it were, and that we're rebuilding from scratch, that, that philosophies have changed, the way that people want to run their lives has changed and and we have to build again, we have to build confidence and we have to build togetherness. 
Yeah. And and coming together and, it, you know, that, that sort of very, very low-level agoraphobia that was left at the end of COVID and making people feel that they deserved to go out and sit in a audience and hear a story that yeah. reflects what everybody has felt and is feeling is is a sort of healing balm that we've forgotten that it, we yeah. are all owed in a way that we owe to ourselves and it starts at every every yeah. level and i do think i i'm not i'm not um i think it is to a large extent party political yeah but i would like to think that um that as a country, when yeah. we that we assess what we want out of building back better, which is yeah, a phrase yeah. that has completely kind of vanished from everything. Um, the idea that somehow, yeah, that the arts is a luxury rather than something that actually improves quality of life for a lot of people. I yeah. would like to think that everybody might start to think about that a bit more. Um, because I think that is what worries me. I, I, my favourite conversation with um, an actor, apart from you, Nancy, you. was with um, James McArdle, of whom I'm oh, a yeah. bit of a fan. And he made a really interesting observation about yeah. his own growing up in Scotland. And it was his grandmother who took him to the theatre. Yeah, yeah. And also to concerts and things, classical yeah. concerts. Because she had grown up in that post-war generation where the idea was that you just kind of... Um, expanded your mind you know you went along to see what you might like in yeah yeah in the theater or you just tried it out and that most important of all it belonged to you yeah yeah. that it really really was part of your life and a part of your rights and part of your um yeah your 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 existence really yes and um he said that his mum and dad who were very busy trying to you know like us all trying to earn enough money trying to buy the house, trying to improve themselves in those physical ways, didn't have quite that sense yes. of the centrality of um, art. I mean, it's interesting thinking about in terms of family. I mean, my grandmother was in ENSA during the war. Oh, right. And the idea that, exciting. you know, they in any wartime situation now that they would develop a corps that was entirely devoted to entertaining the troops. You know, you think of the Second World War and the amount of comedians and singers and, and plays that were put on purely to keep that balance in people's lives that at some point they were going to have to go out to a front and start annihilating people from that they had been told were the enemy. And, uh, you know, and that somebody psychologically who was developing <laughs> a military structure to go into a world war said, what we need, guys, at the centre of this are some plays. Yes, what we need really is a bit of comedy, a bit of music and, yeah. a, you know, a couple of Agatha Christie's <laughs> just to keep everybody... Same, but it's true. It it's true. absolutely it's true, exactly and, you, and, and it's need. just you know whether we whether we like it or not. And I, and I know that they'll say to the blue in the face that it isn't an ideological expression what the conservatives stand for. The fact that they can spend billions on PPE during the war, uh, during the war, during, the slip, during COVID, you know, and and that nobody's really you know. Uh, ha, as yet has has taken taken um taken responsibility for that 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 level of money yeah yeah and um, and yet what we're talking about in relative Tiny. terms so it doesn't even compare so little and it's sort of nuts and it just shows that ideologically and it is political ideologically they just don't get it yeah. and that the art as a term is even you know is banded around yeah. and it, actually that umbrella umbrella 
has had to cover even more than it ever has since 1946. And, yeah. you know, the fact that, oh, it's all right because we've given 1.5 blah, blah, blah to the arts, that includes museums, yeah. uh, heritage sites, yeah. you know, Stonehenge. every single theatre across the country, every single outreach programme, every single educational programme. You know, there's just... It's such a massive, massive thing. And, and but you... But at its core, there are so many stories that I've heard over the years about people that were saved by drama teachers you know, we're literally about to fall off the edge and, and that somebody said, look, come over here, let me show you this play, like, you know, let me give you this speech, let me give you something else to do. You may be dyslexic, you may not, you know, excel at all these other things and suddenly let's put you on a path. You know, the the, the equivalent in youth centres, that mentors in youth centres... Oh, centers yeah, and, but that's... It, yeah. I mean, it's, it's yeah. completely different, but it's... No, it's, it's the same, It's really. the same yeah, thing. It it's somebody looking thing. at the generation mm. coming up behind them and saying, let me just give you a hand. Yeah. Let me show you this language. Let me... I mean, I've done workshops in prisons. I'm sure I've talked to you about it before, about people who, who, who absolutely live thinking that nobody gives a crap about who they are, what they have to say for themselves, what they're feeling about their life trajectory. And then we, we go in there and initially there's a sort of suspicion of like, who the heck is this? But at the end, they are writing poetry. They're talking in iambic pentameter. They're being told that they have something to say and that not only is it worth listening to, it's worth writing down yeah. and recording. And they've never been spoken to like that in their lives. They've never been told that, that language is important. And that, I'm sure I've said it before, that extraordinary documentary that Al Pacino did about Richard III looking for Richard, where he goes up to the guy on the streets and he says, what do you think about Shakespeare? Yeah. He said, he was the communicator. Yeah. And all of the problems in the world that we have have come from a breakdown in communication. Yeah. And that's all it is. Yeah. The art is about communication. It does bring you back to James Graham, because uh, to to tie things in a neat bow, because one of the kind of great lines at the start of Best of Enemies yeah. is that one of the TV executives, because TV in 68 is a fairly new media, yeah, says, yeah, yeah. people are rearranging their furniture around the box in the corner. Oh, yeah, yeah. And, and, and I wonder, I mean, I do wonder how much that kind of sense of, you know, TV does it all is... Um, has changed our view of it. But that is to ignore both, as you say, the communicative possibilities of it, but yeah. also the fact that you won't really get good TV and good film yeah. without great theatre and great performing arts. Yeah. And, and without I, funding I think it the is next a worry. It is your exact, yeah, that idea of funding the next generation, of paying forward, is exactly what these Arts Council cuts didn't do because well because they've they've simply redistributed yeah a very small part but it is I mean I've said it before and I and I absolutely believe it that the arts are preventative medicine you know they 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 find people before it goes wrong yeah they they give people uh you know access they give people language they give people something centrifugal and warming before they need to go to the doctor for for therapy before the you know the, the i mean it's i'm being very very general i don't mean to be but i but i uh, i don't know i just believe to my core that it's 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 the glue yeah it's, as opposed to you know well actually the answer example is nice because it was the glue i mean the agatha christie's are as important as um the james graham's are as yeah. important as um you know the panto is as important as um Shakespeare. I mean, it is. It is a glue. It's a community glue. Which actually brings me on to. I think next week 
for the podcast, we might talk about Christmas and I can bring out my inner Scrooge oh. who comes out very strongly at this time of year. So. And that brings us really nicely to the end of the episode of As the Actress Said to the Critic with me, Nancy Carroll, the actress. And me, Sarah Crompton, the critic.